Hello and welcome to FTI's Investigations Series podcast, Assets, Tracings and Recovery and Focusing on China. My name is Ken Fung and I'm a Senior Managing Director of the Corporate Finance and Restructuring Team here at FTI Consulting and I'm based in Hong Kong. Throughout this podcast series, FTI experts will discuss the latest issues and trends impacting the world of investigations. And today's conversation is centered around recovery, the pitfalls and processes of recovery with a particular focus on Chinese counterparties. Today, I'm joined by special guests, Fabian Rode and Howard Chan of Fangda Partners, a full service law firm advising on PRC and Hong Kong law. Fabian, Howard, can I get you both to quickly introduce yourselves and tell us which area of law do you focus on at Fangda Partners? Ken, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm a counsel in the dispute resolution team of Fangna Partners in Hong Kong on cross-border disputes and contentious regulatory matters. Uh, most of the matters I'm handling have a strong China element and a cross-border aspect to it. And therefore, I often work with uh, my colleagues in Fangna's China offices, as well as experts uh, such as FTI. Hi, Ken. Hi, everybody. Um, thank you for having me on this podcast. My name is Howard Chan, partner of Fangda Partners Dispute Resolution Team. Um, I'm with Fangda Partners Hong Kong office. I'm a Hong Kong lawyer, a solicitor, advocate, and I specialize in commercial disputes before the Hong Kong courts, especially with respect to cross-border and multi-jurisdictional disputes, often involving legal proceedings in China, and other jurisdictions, including Hong Kong. Thanks, Howard, and thanks, Fabian. Um, I'm also here today uh, with my fellow Senior Managing Director, Greg Hallahan. Greg, can you quickly introduce yourself and tell us what you do at FTI? Sure. Thanks, Ken. Hello, everybody. Uh, well, I've been at FTI Consulting here in Hong Kong for over eight years now, and I work in our risk and investigations team. A key focus of ours is conducting assets tracing investigations, quite often here in Greater China, as well as further afield. Thanks, Greg. Um, I wanted to first say that we have a lot of foreign listeners who would be interested to learn more about how does one recover debt in China? We've certainly observed over the last two years, the pandemic, um, the deteriorating US-China relationships that have affected certain businesses. So Fabian or Howard, has your client profile changed over the last two years? Have you seen an uptick in say litigation and arbitration cases concerning recovery? And what sort of clients are you seeing more over the last two years? Thanks, Ken. Um, so I think generally in terms of like an uptick of work, um, well, usually for us, uh, of course, it takes some time for the outside circumstances to be reflected in, you know, a change in workload. So obviously, when the pandemic starts, it's not that the disputes coming through the door right on the next day, but, but surely the, the last two years for us have been quite busy. Um, I'll add to that a little bit in terms of what we're seeing um, in, in terms of clients and, and, and workload and, and how it will surely supplement. Uh, so we, we have you know, a, a good mix of um, traditional industries such as oil and gas, 
that uh, were always and continue to be clients um, and, and you know we're handling uh, cross-border disputes for, for such clients. But of course also you know uh, new new sort of like media, um, uh, internet uh, and as well as financial services clients. Um, and in terms of like where these clients are located, now, as I mentioned in my introduction, most of the, the matters we are handling, they have a cross-border aspect. So there will most likely be um, some China elements involved and some sort of like overseas elements. Um, interestingly, uh, we're also increasingly seeing um, disputes um, between sophisticated Chinese investors and uh, their overseas entities um, that can sometimes consist of, you know, an offshore uh, uh, a holding, uh, maybe a Hong Kong list co, and then they may have made an investment back in China. So we may actually uh, deal with a dispute between ultimately two uh, Chinese-owned entities, but with, um, you know, sophisticated constructions consisting of overseas uh, uh, list co's, uh, uh, and, but the, the matter of the dispute may be located in China. And so, um, you know, this this is just uh, some of the aspects of, of our work, and and where sort of like um, you know we, we see disputes, and where we sort of like see uh, clients. Howard, are you seeing more corporates, funds, banks, etc.? Well, um, from from uh, my own and my firm's perspective, uh, in the past couple of years, uh, we've seen more asset management companies. Uh, and distressed debt managers, um, including but not limited to uh, those based in China, um, we're seeing these companies uh, approaching us uh, more often lately uh, for debt recovery related advice uh, as against debtors uh, who, are, who, who have their operations uh, in China or um, the counterparty tends to have their operations uh, in China. Uh, we've also seen uh, a flare-up of, um, say, um, uh, joint venture disputes um, and, and where the dispute um, might relate to um, some misconduct. Um, it may or may not involve fraud, but some misconduct having taken place um, in China mostly uh, with respect to um, the um, management and operations uh, of the joint venture. And in this scenario, uh, we would um, be engaged uh, and, and advise um, the foreign uh, uh, party who is investing into those uh, operations uh, in China. Now, uh, given the economic downturn, um, I think this is a, a, a natural uh, type of uh, trend uh, that, that we are seeing. And we are indeed uh, seeing this um, over, in particular, um, the last couple of years. Thanks, Howard. Um, now, are there any particular sectors that you're seeing which are more active or, affect, or have been affected the most during the last two years? Thanks, Ken. So in terms of trends, um, as Howard mentioned, we, we do see uh, sort of like an increase in sort of uh, financial services uh, uh, related uh, disputes, you know, funds or other investments that have been made that uh, ultimately lead to, uh, you know, default or, or cases where, uh, you know, legal advice is required. Um, but of 
what has also increased and what we have seen a lot over the last uh, a few years are the instances of complex corporate fraud, um, which initially may start out as an investigation internally or driven by a regulator, but which ultimately also may uh, uh, result in uh, complex proceedings for the recovery of funds or to figure out uh, uh, some internal disputes at the affected companies. Of course, what has been well reported, the pandemic has unfortunately also brought about an increase in online and email fraud that does affect both private persons as well as uh, uh, companies. And we have seen our fair share of those as well and have helped uh, uh, corporate clients with handling those insofar as recovery is uh, 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 concerned, as well as reporting to the relevant authorities. And, and in terms of uh, complex uh, corporate fraud, uh, we have been seeing more of that, uh, particularly in the context of our contentious regulatory practice. And again, I think this is a natural byproduct of the economic downturn uh, which has uh, caused, amongst other things, um, some dire liquidity issues um, for many market participants. And in order for these market players to rectify those liquidity issues, there, there have been increased instances um, over the past couple of years uh, of fraud, whereby one party or group is essentially financing um, another company or a group that is somehow affiliated through some level of common control uh, under the cloak of some dodgy or suspicious transactions. And, and matters such as these have been coming out of the woodwork lately. Uh, and, and regulators have been uh, uh, taking steps uh, against uh, such wrongdoers to the extent that they are being regulated um, by the stock exchange or, or the securities regulators in the market. Greg, what about you? How are you usually engaged? Yeah, generally through counsel and often when the ultimate client is either considering arbitration or is already in dispute with the counterparty. Ideally, we'd like to get involved much earlier. I mean, right at the outset of the contractual relationship with the counterparty, in fact, Incorporating some asset-specific research into the usual pre-transactional diligence done can be really helpful for a number of reasons. One, you're asking for information whilst the relationship is presumably still amicable rather than adversarial. And two, it provides a good snapshot in time back then, which can subsequently be compared to findings now and specifically to identify any dissipation of assets. Now, without that earlier snapshot, it is much more difficult to find evidence of dissipation of assets because essentially you're looking for something that's no longer there. Thanks, Greg. Howard and, and Fabian, look, uh, you, you, you said before, Fainter Partners are uniquely placed and widely known in the market as being a top tier legal firm in China. And I understand you both advise um, Chinese and foreign stakeholders. Is there a difference in approach when advising a foreign stakeholder who are not based in the mainland? Do you advise them differently? In fact, Ken, um, each case um, is going to be different. The background and factual circumstances for each case 
um, is going to be unique. As a disputes lawyer, we always start with a clean sheet. Uh, there are no boilerplates in the papers that we produce. Um, so it's not so much about the location of our client, uh, but rather um, it's going to be about um, the location uh, of the counterparty's assets, uh, which is um, the, the, um, the end game or, or what we're ultimately trying to reach um, in our matters um, for recovery. Um, and so it, it's, it's, it, it's hard to distinguish uh, the way we advise uh, a mainland uh, client versus the way we would advise uh, a client from uh, other uh, countries. Um, and, it, and, and this really goes, I think, um, at its core um, to the issue of how the parties, how the, contract, how the contracting parties um, negotiated um, the deal um, that is now in dispute or, or, or that um, the counterparty has um, defaulted in. Um, and, and that question uh, goes towards to what extent um, um, our client uh, from the outset of this transaction uh, was informed uh, or could have been aware of the location of the counterparty's assets, because I think that would determine um, strategically when you formulate um, the transaction and when you, you know, from a risk management perspective, uh, view the transaction um, in, in circumstances where uh, a dispute might arise sometime down the road. Of course, uh, when the parties are negotiating the deal, um, they're often not so pessimistic about, about the deal, um, but from a risk management perspective, um, it is important to think about that possibility and um, what sort of security uh, ought to be uh, obtained um, you know, as part of the uh, um, contract being negotiated. These sorts of things, and, and, and the, these, are, these are also going to be the issues uh, that we will have to revisit um, as and when um, a default situation arises. And, and, and this is where um, each case will be different, um, not so much uh, in terms of uh, where the client um, themselves are based. Okay. Well, there's always that perception um, that it's too hard to recover debts from a Chinese entity, especially if they are located in China. Is it really that difficult? And when it comes to foreign parties trying to recover a debt, in China, what do you say to, to them? I mean, are there, are there any other way to approach, say, proceedings outside of China, as you alluded to before? Recovery of debts uh, in China uh, does not have to be uh, more difficult um, than uh, seeking recovery uh, in other jurisdictions. Um, whether or not your recovery actions um, will be difficult. Um, again, um, depends upon, I think, you know, how you structured the deal um, at the outset and then taking, a, taking a, a step further back, what sort of information about the, the, the counterparty's assets you had from the outset, the dispute mechanism, uh, wherever, wherever you have to start. 
um, your proceedings uh, and then follow on steps. Consider also um, the, the interim relief uh, measures that we can take, which is sort of a workaround uh, of the uh, jurisdictional limitations pursuant to the contract. Um, and you know, we, we can, we can uh, go, go on to um, the, the sorts of asset preservations um, and, and that sort of um, uh, relief that could be obtained even, even though uh, you have to uh, start proceedings outside of China, but the circumstances require um, that you uh, uh, take these asset preservation steps within the mainland, which is often the case. As I've said, this is um, going to be an asset yeah, a recovery or, or debt recovery matters uh, at the end of the day. Uh, you're, you're most often having to, to go into China uh, to, to do the ultimate uh, recovery, to, to convert your judgment or award uh, into cash. So um, again, I'm afraid it, it really, I, I think, I think you know, that the point that uh, will be, will be uh, uh, repeated uh, during the course of this podcast is the importance of <clears throat> having the, the requisite information on the counterparty's assets at the outset uh, of your uh, negotiations with the other side. And I would add to that, Ken, that uh, there have been some positive developments which uh, do impact the ability to, uh, uh, you know, seek recovery in China. And one of them is uh, a topic that is um, relatively well covered in the legal community, but may not be known to everyone outside. And that is that in 2019, an arrangement, uh, sort of like a treaty between the PRC and Hong Kong was entered into that allows for interim relief to be granted in the PRC in support of arbitration that is seated in Hong Kong. So, you know, for the longest time, law firms, law firms such as ours have advised that in, in complex cross-border uh, 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 contractual situations, arbitration is a very good option for ultimate recovery because arbitral awards through the New York Convention are, you know, it's not an overstatement to say relatively straightforward to enforce around the world as many countries have signed up to the New York Convention. Now, there is still, of course, an issue of whether in support of arbitration, you can obtain interim relief, such as asset preservations, which are usually taken out right at the outset of the dispute to secure the assets, as Howard has alluded to. Now, that was not normally available in the PRC for arbitration seated outside of the PRC. Now, insofar as Hong Kong is concerned, this is now available and uh, is really a unique uh, opportunity for parties that find themselves with a Hong Kong uh, seated arbitration clause in their contract and uh, who at the outset of a dispute want to take the strategic uh, uh, step to secure assets in China. A similar um, advantage may also uh, uh, affect uh, uh, commercial, uh, civil and commercial judgments between uh, the PRC and, and, and Hong Kong. So there have been for the longest time uh, uh, been reciprocal enforcement agreements between the PRC and Hong Kong for the enforcement of uh, civil judgments. However, um, 
these have not always been uh, you know, easy to uh, uh, implement in practice where there have been some sort of like, you know, a difficulty switch enforcing uh, Hong Kong judgments in the PRC because the existing treaties are very narrow in uh, the existing treaty is very narrow in scope. Now, a new treaty has been uh, signed. It has unfortunately not yet entered into force, but is expected to, to enter into force soon. And this should cover around 90%, as it's estimated, of all um, civil or commercial judgments. Um, and then that if that treaty enters into force, um, it should make it much easier, for example, to register a Hong Kong judgment and then subsequently enforce it in China. So again, some positive steps are have been implemented and have been taken to uh, uh, improve the ability of parties to uh, recover assets in China. Thanks, Fabian. Greg, how does your investigations expertise assist the client and lawyers in these in these situations? Well, look, there are always some inherent constraints when it comes to asset tracing. On the one hand, I mean, you are up against an entire global offshore infrastructure that is essentially designed to obfuscate the ownership of assets. And then on the other, obtaining any information on the best asset of all, which is, of course, cash, via public domain research is virtually impossible, given that information is closely held by financial institutions you know, for obvious reasons. However, with all of that said, there really is an incredible array of open source intelligence resources available. And if you're sufficiently aware of these, you know, both within greater China, but also on a global scale, and you take a creative approach to how you do your investigative research, I mean, you can often unearth a lot of really pertinent information. So our clients are always keen to know how you go about doing your job, Greg. So can you tell us the process you go through when you undergo an investigation in China or an investigation of assets held overseas. So, and what, what sort of results can you share with us as well? Sure. Well, we typically break assets down into a number of different categories, including cash and increasingly uh, crypto assets. Then you've equity, real estate, collections of value, artwork, for example, movable assets like aircraft and watercraft, and then a variety of other more esoteric assets like intellectual property, inventory, and so on. Now, by way of very brief summary, on a macro scale, there are some global corporate registries that really provide great coverage these days. And there's an ever-increasing subset of what we would call exposed corporate data from repositories like, say, the ICIJ database, and these really provide more insight than ever before into the ownership of offshore entities. On a more micro scale, there is a huge range of very local kind of district level filings, particularly in the PRC, that you can creatively leverage. I'll give you one example. We were trying to confirm ownership of some important real estate holdings in China. Traditionally, this is very challenging because land registry records in country are, are largely inaccessible. However, one of our team found a permit filed at a local district fire department for the building. And that permit clearly stated who the owner of the building was. So where's, where there's a will, there's, there's often a way. Thanks, Greg. Um, now, uh, Fabian and Howard, can you share any sort of recent success stories 
that um, yeah that you've worked on recently? Sure, Ken. I'll I'll make a start, and uh, I had just alluded to the arrangement between uh, Hong Kong and mainland China for interim relief. That means asset preservation, and that's actually one of the success stories. As I said, this is a relatively new. Uh, arrangement uh, in place since uh, 2019. Um, there have been a number of cases that were brought right after this arrangement went into force because there are obviously a lot of claimants that were keen to secure assets in support of their uh, arbitral proceedings in Hong Kong. And one of our um, uh, clients was one of them. And um, basically what we helped was um, to secure assets uh, valued at over 500 million uh, renminbi in mainland China. Now, what we advised the client when we were preparing um, for this dispute um, was basically to front load the, the work, including asset searches, including to uh, ascertain where the assets are located. And then basically, uh, have the um, application for asset preservation ready together with the uh, application to commence the arbitration. Now, under the arrangement, what you have to do is commence the arbitration, which is done with a relatively simple document called the Notice of Arbitration. That then gives you the ability to ask the arbitral institution, for example, the HKIAC in Hong Kong, to issue a letter of acceptance. And together with that letter of acceptance, you can then commence asset preservation uh, 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 proceedings in mainland China in support of that arbitration that you just commenced in Hong Kong. Now, we did that. It is a process. It takes a bit of time. The court in the PRC does not issue that order preserving the assets right away. But ultimately, we were successful. And as I said, we secured assets of over uh, 500 million uh, renminbi. And um, that obviously gave our uh, client a, a very good uh, strategic position, additional uh, leverage in the dispute to then decide to uh, you know, go back to the negotiation table instead of having the arbitration run its full course and having the fallback position that if negotiations again were not possible, no outcome was achievable, then to basically proceed with the arbitration and in case um, you get a successful award, you would then have your assets secured uh, uh, in, in mainland China and you would be ensured that you ultimately will be able to recover and not basically sit on an empty award. Now, that was a recent uh, success story. Uh, I'm sure, Howard, you can share some others with us. Thanks, Fabian. Um, indeed, since the case that Fabian mentioned, uh, we uh, as a firm um, have processed a, a number of um, other uh, similar applications uh, for asset preservation in support of a Hong Kong seated arbitration. Uh, and we have uh, managed uh, as a firm to, to secure um, in excess of over 1.4 billion uh, renminbi uh, dollars um, in value uh, of assets uh, or about 200 million uh, US dollars worth, uh, these assets being in, in mainland China. Um, other than um, applying for such a nuclear uh, relief um, to preserve assets of the counterparty, uh, we have, again, as, as a firm um, in, in, the, in the recent past, um, been handling uh, 
a number of uh, large uh, PRC-based legal proceedings, court proceedings, um, often parallel proceedings, as I mentioned, uh, taking place uh, in China uh, and Hong Kong uh, or other jurisdictions in respect of recovery actions. Uh, and these parallel proceedings um, would have the background of a joint venture structure with holding companies incorporated in Hong Kong or abroad, but the operations uh, into which the foreign investor invested uh, would be based in China. And the size of these claims um, uh, from our recent matters um, have averaged um, over 100 million renminbi. Uh, and the biggest size uh, of the claim that we handled last year uh, was um, for more than 7 billion uh, renminbi. Um, and we're in the process of um, um, obtaining a, um, a, a successful uh, judgment uh, in that regard. Greg, do you, you want to add anything? Yeah, um, look, there, there are many, uh, Ken, and, and very interesting ways of finding unique assets from, from private jets through to yachts, through to collections of art, for example. One thing I'd say, though, uh, which perhaps we haven't touched on is, look, it's one thing to trace the asset and identify a clear, tangible line of ownership from that asset back to the counterparty. But the next step to all of that is then checking for any encumbrances uh, on that asset. Because often, if the counterparty is in financial distress with, with your client, uh, there are likely other clients that are circling the same counterparty and involved in the same issues. So it may be that the asset you've found and intend to go after is already encumbered uh, by, by another creditor or another, um, another company. So tracing the assets is one thing. Um, but and also the next step to all of that would be checking those same assets to see whether or not there are any claims or encumbrances over them. So finally, are we going to be more busy? What's your prediction in terms of our line of work going forward? I might start with Greg. Yeah, look, asset tracing requests have certainly grown uh, over the last couple of years to be a big part of our business. And I would anticipate that continuing to increase in the future. Fabian? And from our end, I think, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a reality that whether business is good or business is bad, disputes unfortunately always happen. The same for fraud. So I, I do expect that we will be staying busy and that we will see similar cases. I concur with what Fabian said. Um, we will continue to um, have questions uh, posed on us um, from uh, creditors uh, and other parties seeking to recover. Um, and um, it, it's just unfortunate that, you know, as, as always, you know, when, when questions come to us, it is when the instance of default has already happened. Okay, that's all we have time for today. Um, it's certainly been an interesting discussion. I'd like to thank my guests, Fabian and Howard of Fang Partners and also Greg for joining me today. A pleasure. Thank you very much for having us. Thank you. Remember to subscribe to our podcast so that you don't miss out on future episodes. And if you'd like to find out more about what we do at FTI Consulting and how we build 
a resilient future for clients, please reach out to myself or any of our today's guests via the FTI website and the Fangda website. Thank you.